0: You've heard of the word priest, have you not? It's in common parlance, priest. I, uh, I was curious, and so I looked it up the other day in the dictionary. Here's a dictionary definition of priest one who officiates at the altar or performs the rites of sacrifice, one who acts as a mediator between men and the divinity or the gods in any form of religion. Usually when we think of priests, you may be thinking of a Catholic priest or even a Levitical priest, an Old Testament priest. But you may be surprised to know that just about every major religion has a priest or a priest equivalent in its belief system. Let me just Let me just give you a survey, a sampling of the different priests who serve their faith communities. For instance, here is a little bit of a picture of a Hindu priest. And this priest is uh, offering something to uh, Hindu gods on behalf of the people whom he serves. And here is a Shinto priest and priestess. It's an Eastern religion Shintoism. Many religious bodies have not only a priest, a male, but also priestess. Again, they're the mediators. They're the agents that bring you to God. And then here's a depiction of an ancient Egyptian priest. There were many in ancient Egypt. Here's one in typical garb. Uh, And then then here are some Armenian priests, Armenian priests. And here's a depiction of of a Russian Orthodox priest. And then here's a Coptic Orthodox priest. Coptics, Egypt. Have to pray for Egypt. Lots of uh, tumultuous events there. Here's a Coptic Orthodox priest. And then here's a Greek Orthodox priest, you see. And then here's a Samaritan priest. There are still Samaritans today. And This is a Samaritan priest. He's a go-between between between his people and his deity. And here's a priest from the Amazon, an Amazonian priest, representing a tribal religion in the Amazon. And then here's a Mayan priest uh, serving his people in South America, a Mayan priest. And then here's a Taoist priest, or Taoism, Taoism is another Eastern religion spelled T A O I S M, but pronounced Taoism. It's a Taoist priest. And then here is a Zoroastrian priest. Zoroastrianism is one of the major religions in many places, uh, not the least of which is Iran. Iran. Muslim people in Iran and Zoroastrian people in Iran, of course, Christian people as well. But Zoroastrianism is a a fairly popular faith group in Iran and other places. These Zoroastrian priests are, uh, uh, are engaged in a Zoroastrian fire ceremony that they do, and this is to win the favor of their deity. Well, all kinds of different religions and different priests, and I could go on and on, but they all have something in common. See, the existence of priests implies something. It implies this. You cannot get to God on your own. The existence of a priest, no matter what the priestly garb, whether it be South America or whether it be Iran or the United States, the existence of priests in various religious groupings Uh, strongly imply you cannot get to God on your own. You need somebody to bring you to Him, and not only that, you need somebody to bring your offering to Him. You cannot take something out of your hand and put it into the hand of your deity. You have no right to approach that way. You need an agent, don't you see? That's what a priest is. A priest is someone who mediates between you and whoever it is Uh, you call your God or or gods. So that person, the priest, you could see, uh, plays a very critical and crucial role, quite important, because that person is your bridge to God. That person is your designated mediator. And because that person plays such a significant role in your standing and access to God, however you refer to God, because that person's role is so important, you would be wise to make sure you have absolutely the best, most wonderful, most fitting, most qualified, most suitable, most caring priest possible. And the writer of Hebrews agrees with the statement I just made, and because of it, In the chapter before us, he, the writer of Hebrews, wants to persuade us of this. Jesus Christ is a better priest than all others. And this is our topic uh, for the next few moments in this study of Hebrews, which we're calling the letter of better tonight, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 28, the topic being Jesus is better than any other priest. Now, the letter of Hebrews, you know now, is written to Jewish people, hence the name Hebrews. And because they were Jews, they were familiar, very much familiar with their priestly system, and in particular, the one who was their first high priest centuries before the letter of Hebrews was written. His name was Aaron. And, uh, uh, here's an idea of some of the priestly garments the high priest, the first high priest of Israel, would be found wearing, you see. He was called a kohen, kohen, meaning priest. If you run into a Jewish person today whose last name is Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, or Khan, that's a form of kohen, priestly. That means those people are from the priestly tribe. But Aaron is referred to not just as Kohen, but Kohen Gadol. Would you like to to learn a Hebrew word? It wouldn't kill you. It's the word Gadol. Try saying that. Here we go. Gadol. You don't know what you said. Thanks for trusting me. You said a good thing. It just means great, high. So Aaron is not just a Kohen, a priest. He's a Kohen what kind? Gadol. He's the high priest. He's the first high priest of ancient Israel. And he came from a tribe. Do you know what tribe he came from? Uh, Levi, or Levi. He was a Levite. So you hear the term priests and Levites? Every priest in Israel had to be a Levite. But not every Levite was a priest. In order to be a priest, you had to not only be a Levite, you also had to be in the direct line of descent from Aaron. So it was quite limited to the line of Aaron, okay? So Aaron is the first high priest, but others succeeded him, but they had to be from the Levitical line, and more particularly, they had to be in the genealogical chain starting with Aaron. I take a lot of time to tell you that because the writer of Hebrews is about ready to throw something at us that flies in the face of what I just told you. You see, he's about to introduce us to a priest of an entirely different kind, and his name is Melchizedek. You know him? Or Melchizedek. King of righteousness is what it means. Melech. What kind? Uh, Tzaddik, king of righteousness. But we can say Melchizedek. How do you pronounce it? How how do you like it? Yeah, oh good, no one agrees. Yeah, okay. Anyway, Melchizedek, it's not just that his name is hard to pronounce. He's hard to figure out. See, he's not in the line of Aaron at all. And I read in the Bible, I'm not making this up. You did too. According to the law of Moses, the priestly line had to be through the tribe of Levi and particularly through Aaron. But Melchizedek just sort of, who is he? Well, in the Bible, he's only mentioned three times, one of which is right here, in, in Hebrews, and we don't know what line he comes from. He just happens out of the blue. And in verse one, uh, he is called priest of the Most High God. Well, that's, again, he's Kohen Gadol. But where'd he come from? He this is said in Genesis chapter 14. That's the first reference in the Bible to Melchizedek. The second is in Psalm 110, and the third is right here in Hebrews, and that's all we got. So to try to put together a composite picture of this mysterious Melchizedek is a bit of a challenge because we don't know who is he. I mean, he's designated in inspired scriptures being priest of the Most High God. And it appears that he was recognized as such centuries before Aaron and the Levites and all of those people. In fact, it appears that long before Aaron and those in the priestly line, Melchizedek was acknowledged as a high priest of God by Abraham. You heard of him, right? Avraham. I mean, this is a big gun. He's the patriarch, right? So so I can show you how Abraham acknowledged Melchizedek as a high priest. Here's what happened. You can read about this sometime if you'd like. Genesis 14. Abraham had a relative named Lot. Was he a good guy? I, I don't think so. I don't think Lot was a real virtuous guy. But it doesn't matter. He's Abraham's relative, so you get rights, even if you're kind of a slouch. I think Lot was a slouch, but he had the good fortune of being in Abraham's family line. So a bunch of kings get together, about four or five, I don't remember, and they plot, and they come against Abraham. They steal Lot. I'm thinking, that's a good thing. (laughs) Apparently, Abraham didn't see it that way. So Abraham uh, summons up some folks and goes after these guys who stole Lot. And uh, he succeeds in finding Lot and beating up on these other kings. And he brings Lot back home. See, Abraham went north. And he brings him south. And when Abraham got back, uh, here's what he did. It says this in Genesis 14. Uh, And the writer of Hebrews in verse 4, referring to it, says, Now observe how great this man, Melchizedek, was, get this, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. When Abraham got back, he was so grateful to God for granting him success, he took a tenth, a tithe of the spoils, and withheld not even the best of it, and offered it to Melchizedek as a thank offering, not to Melchizedek, but to God and to Melchizedek as God's representative, as one of his high priests. And not only did Abraham give him a tithe for God, but there's something else that we read about in verse 7. Uh, uh, it talks about how Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and so it says in verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. You can understand that. That makes sense. The lesser is blessed by the greater. You know, bless you, my child. Bless you. Bless you. The superior pronounces the blessing on the subordinate. So for Melchizedek, To bless Abraham, the writer of Hebrews is saying, implies Melchizedek was even greater than the father of the Hebrews, Abraham, and he's also your father, is he not? The father of faith. So Melchizedek is something, but he's not anywhere near the line of uh, Aaron or the Levites or anything like that. Well, Well, who is he? What is his line? Don't you want to know? I mean, I'd like to know. Well, all we can know about him is what we're given, and all we're given is in verse 3 of Hebrews 7, and it says he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. Well, wow, that tells me nothing. What does it mean without father, without mother? Not not literally. I mean, he was born, right? He was a person. It requires those two people to birth a child, father and mother. That's the way it works. You know this. When it says he was without father and mother, it doesn't mean he didn't have any. It means we don't know who they are. They're not mentioned at all anywhere in the Bible. He just appears. Not only is, is he without father, he's without genealogy. You can read the genealogy of Aaron or Abraham or other people in the Bible, but we don't have a genealogy of Melchizedek. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a line of descent. It means the scripture is silent about it. That's all the, that the writer of Hebrews is, that's the only case he's making right now. We don't know anything about it. He just We cannot trace his roots in any way to a priestly line, the traditional priestly line. He's just there. And so in this sense, the writer of Hebrews, continuing in verse 3, refers to him as having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Again, not literally, but we don't know of his beginning and his end. We don't know of who preceded him. We, didn't know, we don't know of his su- priestly successor. We just see Melchizedek holding down out of the blue the position of priest of the Most High God, and his priestly ministry has no beginning we know about, nor does it have any end that we know about. Can I tell you something? <clears throat> well, I, I guess I am. Um, this reminds me of the Lord Jesus Am I missing it? Am I jumping to conclusions? I'm not. You know how I know I'm not jumped to conclusions? That's the very conclusion the writer of Hebrews comes to. Check it out, verse 3. But made like the Son of God. He's coming to the conclusion that this Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. The priest... Melchizedek foreshadows the far better high priest, the Lord Jesus. In what way? Well, uh, for one thing, in verse 1, Melchizedek is referred to as the king of Salem. Does anyone want to guess uh, another name for Salem? I'll bet you know what it is. It's Jerusalem. Yerushalayim, city of Salem, city of peace. You know, if you know anything about the Bible, that Jerusalem, the holy city, is the city of the great king, the Lord Jesus. Not only is Melchizedek a foreshadowing of the high priest Jesus in this regard, in verse two he's also referred to as king of righteousness and king of peace. Folks, when it comes to righteousness with God, right standing with God, and when it comes to peace with God, both come through, the ultimate high priest, the Lord Jesus. And there's something even more interesting about Melchizedek, he's not just a king, he's also been referred to as a priest. He holds both offices, priest and king. I must tell you, in the rest of Israel's history, the two were distinguished, one or the other. What do you want to be? You want to be the king, you want to be the priest. Maybe that was the equivalent of separation of church and state in those days. I don't know. But I know in, in the case of Melchizedek, both offices merge. He holds down both titles, he's priest and king. And he reminds me of the Lord Jesus because he's king of kings and he is the high priest as well. So you see Melchizedek, in my opinion, no, in the uh, uh, statement of the writer of Hebrews, is just like the son of God. And the writer says, uh, furthermore, in verse 3, that due to the absence of the mention of Melchizedek's beginning and end, he remains a priest continually, and that really reminds me of the Lord Jesus, Alpha and Omega, no beginning nor end. And one final parallel between the two, Melchizedek did not come, as I mentioned, from the tribe of Levi, and neither did the Lord Jesus. He came, what tribe did the Lord Jesus come from? He came from Judah. I mean, look, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, not from Levi, but from Judah. And the writer of Hebrews goes on in that same verse to say, this is a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Melchizedek is not from the line of Levi, and neither is the Lord Jesus. It's like the Lord Jesus really is a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. So what's going on here? Uh, the priests in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests, they, they couldn't, they, if we lived then, they couldn't change our sinful lives. They couldn't do it. Their ministry of offering up Animal sacrifice surely gave us a notion of our sinfulness and of the holiness of God, and yet none of that system could change us, couldn't make us good. Uh, The system of the Levitical priests could remind us of our sin, but in no way could remove our sin. No way. The ministry of the Old Testament priests in the line of Aaron could expose sin, but never perfect the sinner. Never, never, never. And so we read this in verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, then what further need was there for another priest to arrive? If the Levitical priesthood, the order of priests under Aaron could transform our lives from the inside out, if it could perfect us, then what need would there be for another priesthood? But there is a need because the law, though it be of God, cannot change us. It is good. We ain't. The law does anything. It reminds us that we are law breakers. And so we need a new high priest because animal sacrifices offered by the priesthood of old could not save us. Only the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, could finally once and for all lay to rest the righteous wrath of a holy God against you and I, we who sin who break his law. The priesthood of Aaron, the Levites, could not save us. So we need a priest of a different line because they are flawed human beings like you and me. And the proof is before Aaron and the boys offered any sacrifices for our sin, they had to first offer it for their own. And you know what else? They died. And a lot of times when they died, they were replaced by someone who merely was in their genealogical line but wasn't a good priest at all. Lots of times they were really ungodly folk. It was a very flawed order of priests. We need a priest of an entirely different kind. Remember, everyone in the world, every world religion implies, you don't have access to God on your own. You need a mediator. We agree with that. The writer of Hebrews is trying to persuade us that's true, but we need a far better mediator than existed under the old covenant. We need a mediator. We need a high priest whose ministry on our behalf is forever. And folks, we have such a high priest. What's his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. Verse 17 says, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That is a quotation from Psalm 110 Verse 4, now being applied by the writer of Hebrews centuries later to the Lord Jesus. You are not a priest according to the order of the Levites and Aaron who came and went and had their own sin. No, you're of the order of Melchizedek. No known beginning, no end. You serve in perpetuity. You serve forever. And do you know why it is so important that this concept of the forever ministry of our high priest Jesus be known? If the priesthood of Jesus is not forever, you and I cannot be assured of our salvation forever. Some are troubled about the permanence of salvation. Thank you for coming and bearing with us and so on, it's a good issue to wrestle With, I just hope you come to have peace about it because the basis of the assurance of your salvation and mine, don't look inside, don't look to your own good behavior. That's probably why you're stumbling over eternal security. Oh my goodness, it's not very secure to look at your good deeds, my good they come and go. No, 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 no. The basis of the eternality and assurance of our salvation is the eternal priestly ministry of the greater high priest, the Lord Jesus. Okay, so look. Um, We covered the first 24 verses of chapter 7. I didn't do such a good job. I'll tell you why. We'd be here almost forever. It's like stock full of stuff. And it's complicated stuff. First 24 verses. And people even argue about some of this stuff. I don't mind doing that if you want to some other time. But I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Even though the first 24 verses are a little hard to understand and handle, verse 25 is not. Get this. This is the whole deal. This is the main point of everything we've spoken about. And I can see this because verse 25 begins, is introduced by the word, therefore. So that tells me everything that came before uh, leads to this conclusion. What are the first 24 verses? Therefore. This therefore says, everything said before, whether you get it or not, is for a purpose. Therefore, uh, all that has been said in the first 24 verses leads to this, he is able to save yeah hallelujah is right hallelujah is right that's the point this is a lot of complicated stuff why shouldn't it be complicated i mean this is god's word you think you're gonna understand everything about god what he's incomprehensible he, just, he gives us understanding in accordance with his good will but we don't understand him fully we don't even understand one another Are you kidding me But don't miss this. All the stuff that came in the first 24 verses, which I didn't go through in such a good way, therefore, it all leads to this conclusion. He is able to save. From what? The Son of God is able to save us, get this, from God, his Father. What? Save us from God? Yeah specifically from the wrath of God. I know this is very unpopular today because we want to conceive of deity as like a flower child who grades on a curve and gives 10 suggestions instead of 10 commandments. No, no, no. He's intensely holy. I don't think we know what that means because we're not. He's really, really holy. Listen. He's not tempted by sin. He cannot sin. No sinful thing dwells in him, neither in thought, word, or deed. Do you know what it's like to have pure motives? Forget about behaviors. Do you know what it's like to have pure motives? No, you don't. Because none of us do. But God does. There's no impure thing in him. Therefore, impure things, like us, offend his holiness. And the wrath of God is rightly aroused against unholy, sinful beings like you and me, and have always existed from Melchizedek and Abraham and all. That's human nature. That's just the way it is. So, what is it that the Lord Jesus saves us from? From the wrath of his Father. How does he do it? He stands in between the two of us, he just puts himself in the mix. And the Father says, look what so-and-so did. And the Lord Jesus stands in the gap and says, true. We don't call it a mistake. That is deliberate sin against your holiness and mine, Father. But I suffered and died for that one. And the father said, case which I have had against that one is dismissed. That's a high priest to have. That's the one you want. Because he fits the need. The need is to have God's wrath appeased. Who can do it but the God, man. No mere man can appease the wrath of God against other men because it's on him too. So I need a better high priest. I need a son of God on the divine side who is also son of man on the human side, and I need him to mediate two parties in conflict, unholy ones in conflict with the Holy One. That's what the Lord Jesus, but how long is he going to, this is great, but how long is he going to keep it up? I love the next verse. Forever. Hebrews 7.25. That's a good one to memorize if you're into that. He can save us forever. Forever is timelessness. Forever is unaffected by fate and change and circumstances and the vicissitudes of life and your fickleness in mine and your unfaithfulness in mine, forever stands over against any other eventuality, and this high priest, living forever, serving in perpetuity, can save ones like you and me forever. Who in particular can he save? What oh, says right there? Those who draw near to God through him. Not the Mayan priest, not the uh, Zoroastrian priest, not the Shinto priest, not the Jewish priest, rabbi, whatever. <clears throat> the high priest, the Lord Jesus. See, he can save those who drew near to God through him. Through him. How? Well, it says right there, he always lives to make intercession for them. You and I, Always have a need for intercession, and he always lives to offer it. He always leads to put himself right between (laughs) you, me, and Almighty God, his Father. He continually mediates between the Father and us, and he does this forever because the text says he always lives. He always lives. Because he lives forever, he intercedes for us forever. And Because he intercedes for us forever, we are saved forever. We are saved forever. If you look to yourself, my fellow Christian, you're going to doubt that. That's your problem. There's nothing hot about you. You look to Jesus. He lives forever. He intercedes for us forever. And that's the basis upon which we can count on this. We shall be saved forever. Jesus, don't you see, is a far better priest than any other. And because he lives, he's able to save us forever. I'm nervous about today, are you? I shouldn't say that. That's a bad word, nervous I am. It shakes me up, life. You too. It's disturbing to me, life. I find myself asking, what next? What can I tell you? Crazy stuff. Upheaval. Uncertainty. Insecurity. The whole deal. Give me something I can... can Rest upon. Give me something unchangeable. Give me something that lasts. Jesus lasts. He serves in the order of Melchizedek. There's no beginning. There's no end. And his ministry on my behalf and yours lasts. He always intercedes. And therefore, here's what I can, you can rest upon. We shall be saved forever. We're not promised smooth sailing here. We're promised arrival one day on the other side based upon the eternality of the far better high priest, the Lord Jesus, who eternally is interceding for us And thus assuring us of forever salvation. So I'm nervous about tomorrow, but because he lives, even a shaky guy like me can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear needs to be gone. Because I know he holds the future. Because of that, life is worth the living just because He lives. We should sing that. Let's sing. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future and life is worth the living just because He Living Savior, thank you for everything. We stand amazed at what you have done and at what you are now doing for one such as us, an advocate, a mediator, a peacemaker. Wow. Oh God, we are grateful and hope we show it in the way we conduct ourselves in this life on the way to the next. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our rock of security and safety unchanging one alpha and omega not bounded by the beginning of days or end not affected by death and dying no sin no need for an offering on your own behalf hence the magnificence of the offering of yourself on our behalf O oh God we may forfeit all manner of things, but thank you. One thing we will never forfeit is our salvation. For you, O great high priest, serve as high priest forever. We praise you, love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.